Welcome to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. This week, Seattle Mayor Bruce Harrell gives his first State of the City address just a month and a half into his term. The Richland School Board has a wild week flip-flopping over mask mandates. Three members of a California school board are removed from office for being too progressive, and legislative aides stage a sick-out in Olympia. But first, Governor Inslee this week announced an end to the masking mandates indoors and an end to the vaccine requirements for certain locations and certain events. But it's not immediate. March 1st for the vaccination requirement, March 21st for the masking requirement. And to break it all down, I'm joined now by Northwest News Radio reporter Ryan Harris. And uh, this was a rather extensive press conference that the governor held this past week. He was joined by Dr. Umer Shah, the health secretary for Washington. Washington State, Chris Reichdahl, the superintendent of public instruction and others. Uh, But it's basically signaling an end to COVID restrictions here in Washington State after two years. Yeah, for the most part, Jeff, that's true. Uh, The governor did point out that, number one, there are still federal requirements when it comes to public transit, buses, including school buses and planes where you have to wear a mask. And now with the CDC chattering about possibly changing its mask guidance, that is likely to change. But not yet. We haven't heard any changes yet. The other thing the governor pointed out is that when we're talking about hospitals, clinics, your dentist's office, uh, if you have to go into a jail or prison, those places will still require you to wear a mask. So it's not a complete lifting of the rule, but it's certainly a loosening of the rule. And, you know, the governor said it's really a part of a step forward for Washington State. We think this is both good for our health and our education of our children and the total reopening of our economy. And we should be very pleased with the progress we have made. Now, the governor also addressed People who suggested, and I say people, I mean Republicans in the state legislature and the leadership of that party in both houses, who put out a statement and say the mask mandate should be lifted now. We don't have to wait another month. And when we make decisions, it seems to me we ought to have a recognition of how dangerous and deadly this disease still is after this period of time. And it cannot be allowed to blind us the fact that we're making progress to the fact that we are not where we need to be yet to be safe. The other thing the governor pointed out is this is another example of us following the science. They used the metric of hospitalizations, COVID hospitalizations, which the governor says are still high right now. And they are very high. They're not that far off the peak. But he also is using projections from the State Department of Health that show them really rapidly dropping off as the transmission rate for COVID also falls off. And what they were looking at was a point where They knew it would be safer for us to lift the mask mandate and still be okay with those hospitalizations. Now, the governor says that's a result of the science, and he says it's the same science that he believes helped save 17,000 lives over the course of the pandemic here in Washington. Well, science has, has done very well by us, and that's why we continue to hew to it as a guide. And we think that this is the right goal, which is to make sure that people can have hospitals that can care for them. And this is still a problem. Now, we saw super 
Superintendent Chris Reichdahl in the past weeks. He is the head of public schools in Washington State. He's been pushing the governor to lift the mask mandates. He sent an open letter to the governor asking for that. We talked to him personally here at Northwest News Radio about that. Uh, and then he announced that he was going to hold his own press conference this week and then decided to cancel it, instead joining Jay Inslee. So it appears that the government, uh, at least those two branches of it, are in sync here and that uh, Reichdahl supports this move. You know, that was one thing that I sort of was speculating about as we knew this announcement was coming, because in the previous week, the governor did say that this was the week he would announce when we would end the statewide mask mandate. And I look at California, which also on the same day created its own transition into the endemic, as they call it. And I thought about that. I thought, you know, the governor could lift the mask mandate for businesses, bars and restaurants and gyms and movie theaters and that sort of thing. But he could separate out the school mask mandate and keep that in place. That's not the case. California did it differently. California is is keeping the school mask mandate in place for a while now, at least a little while until they see things change there. So taking a different path here in Washington, but yes, absolutely, they're all lined up and on the same page when they weren't originally even as you know short as just a, a couple of days ago. And we'll have more on the mask mandate in schools and the reaction to it coming up a little bit later on in the show. But Ryan, uh, what about the Republicans? Have we seen any response from them uh, as far as the governor's new order? Because they've been highly critical of the governor since this whole thing started. Yes, absolutely. And in addition to saying that we shouldn't have to wait a a month for the mask mandate to be lifted statewide, and they say it should at this point be a matter of personal choice, they were also critical of the majority Democrats for a couple of reasons. They say that uh, the Democrats aren't listening to the wishes of Washingtonians. They say that uh, Democrats in the legislature are not willing to even debate any of these mandates. And they say it's clear to them that Democrats are not interested at all in discussing any reform or what they call reform of the governor's emergency powers. There's been a little bit of that happening in the state legislature, but it really hasn't gained a lot of traction and it certainly is not going to go as far as Republicans in Olympia would like it to go. But we have seen some Democrats sign on to this idea of limiting the governor's emergency powers, haven't we? A little bit here. There have been a couple of bills floating around that would not necessarily limit the powers per Per se, but limit the amount of time that they're in place without the legislature stepping in and giving its stamp of approval. They have one plan for if they're in session and another plan that allows the leadership of both parties to do it in writing if they're not in session. But, uh, you know, I really honestly don't know how much traction that's going to gain at the state capitol because you have, of course, Democrats in the majority in both houses. And I don't think that there is any real interest in any extreme changes to the governor's emergency powers because they've been completely supportive of them along the way. Even the governor loves to throw out his his, uh, sort of winning record when it comes to votes from the legislature that have confirmed his COVID orders throughout the course of the pandemic, most of them anyway. And so I don't see that this is going to go too far. And I think uh, both Governor Inslee and future governors of Washington will have pretty extensive powers when it comes to state 
states of emergency, and that includes public health emergencies. And speaking of the state of the emergency, the governor declined to lift the state of emergency on March 21st. That's when the masks can come off, but the state of emergency remains in place, as does his power. Absolutely. And it all comes down to one thing. You know the phrase, follow the money. The governor didn't pull any punches when he was asked if that state of emergency would be lifted around March 21st sometime along with the statewide mask mandate. He said no. And the reason that needs to stay in place is because that gives us access to federal money. And we still, uh, according to the governor, need that money to come in because we are still responding to the COVID crisis. All right, Ryan Harris, the reporter for Northwest News Radio. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Jeff. When we come back, the political fight over masks leaves students in one district wondering why the adults can't figure this out when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. It was a chaotic week for those in the Richland School District. The school board first voted to defy the state's mask mandate and allow face coverings to be optional. But the superintendent, saying that could put the district at risk of lawsuits and the loss of state funding, ordered an emergency closure of schools. The board then held several emergency sessions before backing down. But while all of this was happening, students lost two days of classes. Greg Neft of News Radio 610 KONA in the Tri-Cities joins us now. And this seemed to get a little tense between the school board and the superintendent. Been a boring 72 hours here in the Tri Cities. If this were a circus carnival ride, you might call it the whip. Let me set the scene for you. We got word Tuesday afternoon that the Richland School Board was going to, going to hold an emergency session, a, a special session of their normal school board meeting. They headed right into executive session. They came about came out about 20 minutes later and voted on a motion to immediately lift the mask mandate, uh, essentially making masks optional, making it a choice for students and staff. Uh, district-wide effective immediately. This, again, of course, was on Tuesday, uh, well before Governor Jay Inslee's announcement. Then, about two hours later, not even that, the superintendent essentially puts out a notice saying there will be an emergency shutdown of the school district. All school buildings closed, no transportation, no school buses, no school whatsoever uh, district-wide in the Richland School District. They called it an emergency shutdown. After that, no school was allowed on Wednesday. We had another executive session, another emergency meeting uh, with the Richland School Board, and they essentially took no action that Wednesday. Uh, that prompted the superintendent to again extend the emergency shutdown into Thursday. The school board met again. This again after Governor Jay Inslee's announcement that he would lift the mask mandate on March 21st. And after about two hours of executive closed-door session, they came out and they said, we will hold off on lifting the mask mandate and follow the governor's lead here by a four-to-one vote uh, until March 21st, essentially allowing the superintendent to reopen the school. Now, school is back in session as normal here uh, in the Richland School District. Uh, students are there and they're attending school. Uh, but again, it's been something of a whiplash event for over the past 72 hours with the school board making a stand against masks on Tuesday, doing nothing on Wednesday, letting protests break out, and then essentially reversing themselves and saying, yes, we're going to follow the governor. So essentially here, it's been quite the couple past few days. You mentioned the protests. What's been the reaction from parents? It has been split 50-50. 
Uh, it's very interesting to see. On Wednesday, we had a massive protest along a major highway here in the uh, Tri-Cities region. Uh, I would say at least 70 to 100 people lined the streets of this uh, roadway, uh, the sidewalks. They didn't get in the roadway, but they were uh, essentially in favor of the school board's action. Then the very next day, Thursday, right before uh, Governor Inslee's announcement and right before the school board met again, uh, they, uh, the other side, I would say with similar numbers, met same, free, same highway, same sidewalks, uh, protesting the school district's decision to make masks optional. A lot of students uh, waving signs and parents, too, saying, school board, keep us safe. So it, there's been a lot of polarization. Not everybody here is on the same page, but there's a slight edge to those who are anti-mask uh, than those who are uh, pro-mask mandate. There's there's a little bit greater of a number there. Greg Neft with News Radio 610 KONE in the Tri-Cities. Thank you so much. Well, there are not many cities that are more liberal or more progressive than Seattle, but at the top of any such list would have to be San Francisco. However, it appears three members of that city's school board have now been recalled for being too progressive. ABC's Alex Stone joins us now, and what's going on? Yeah, so uh, really interesting. Uh, the, the school board, uh, the, the claim being made by some is that they have gone too far to the left, and you may remember last year when the board was making all kinds of different moves for equality that the big headline was that they were uh, moving to, to rename 44 schools because they claimed that their names were offensive, names like George Washington Middle School, Abraham Lincoln, even Diane Feinstein, that they said that she had votes in her history that they disagreed with. This was the board president back then. We're committed to undoing symbols of racism and white supremacy culture. Now, as anybody uh, who they deemed had been involved in colonization, in slavery, racism, genocide, problem was they got many of their facts wrong on the, the names that they banned. They kind of bantered about and would say, well, yeah, we've got problems with this person, we've got problems with that one, but they never consulted with historians. And they made other moves in the name uh, of equity. And so parents and Democrat leaders in San Francisco, they said enough that during all of that, San Francisco was one of the last cities to send their kids back into classrooms. Parents were angry about that while the school board was dealing with these other issues, and, and now they have this. This school board chose to rename schools instead of reopening them, and they put our kids through suffering through Zoom school longer than necessary. Uh, they've driven the schools into a financial ditch. That's one of the dads. It is mainly Democrats fighting amongst Democrats. San Francisco's liberal mayor has been calling for the school board members to be recalled. The uh, teachers' union has been defending them, but supporters, Jeff, of the recall, they say that, that they've got to go. This action by the school board has only made all of those disparities worse. So kids like mine have fallen far behind. And so now only three of the board members have been up for recall because they are the ones who have been there long enough to be recalled. The others are too new, but a lot of big money from big tech in the Silicon Valley, Democrat money, has been flowing into to making this go forward that you've got a lot of big names who are liberal names, but they are saying this was too much, that the, the focus needed to be on getting kids back into school, and the, the school board was not doing that. So that led to, to what we've been seeing, and people in San Francisco being asked, was this school board too progressive? Should they have been focused on, on less of that, 
more getting kids back, and that's what the city is deciding on now. Abraham Lincoln, that was one of the names that they took offense to. How could Abraham Lincoln be associated with anything but freeing the slaves? Yeah, well, there were a lot of names on there of uh, of people who you would think were more toward creating opportunity, but they had a history of something that, that they did. The school board decided that, that they were then going to be banned and, and that their name was going to be out of there. Again, it, it became a, a situation of once it was known that there had not been a lot of consultation over the names other than just internally, well, then there was a lot of pushback about that. And then there were issues of taking down admission requirements to a prestigious high school in in San Francisco uh, and then the the arts department uh, in the the school uh, wanted in the district wanted to get rid of acronyms saying acronyms are a symbol of white supremacy uh, so there were a lot of things going on in that time and parents were saying enough we want our kids back in school we don't want the focus to be on this uh, and then the the ball started rolling, and and where we are now. Here in Washington, uh, in order to have a recall of an elected official, you have to prove that there's been some sort of malfeasance of office, or at least have a judge sign off that there's a, a you know a, a reasonable suspicion or a reasonable thought that they have violated their oath. This seems to be all politics, and and is there any sort of standard like that in California? Well, this is a lot of politics. It is that they got enough signatures to then get the the recall vote going. Same thing that we. We saw with Governor Newsom that, that then was defeated by the, the general public. We've seen it with others as well, that yeah, if you can get to a threshold of getting enough signatures, and uh, that's what there are other recall efforts underway in California right now, then uh, you bring that to the, the city or the state or the county, depending on what it is, then, uh, then it goes on the ballot. And uh, that is what they've done here. They have whatever that threshold was of uh, people saying, yeah, I want to vote on this, and, uh, and they got there, and then they went on the ballot. Did the three members that were facing the recall, did they have any kind of a response to this criticism? Yeah, they say that they have been working in the best interest of the children, saying that they were working to, to get schools open while they were dealing with what they believe were important issues of changing the names of those schools, of the admission requirements to make it more equal of who could get in to a number of other things that they were doing. They say they have been financially responsible and making sure that the the school district is on a good path uh, forward and, and that they say they've been doing their job and they're proud of it, that they've got the uh, teachers union behind them. The teachers union had represented them when they were all teachers and they say that, that they want to stick around. But uh, it is this question of, were they going beyond what the the city wanted? That the, yes, you've got a very liberal city, but is it, were they too progressive? Where where the the public is saying no, that's not what we want. All right, ABC's Alex Stone, thank you so much for your time. You got it, thanks, Jeff. When we come back, what is the state of Seattle? The new mayor gives his first major address. With the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelo. Well, the brand new mayor of the city of Seattle gave his first major address, a state of the city address this past week. And our own John Lobertini has been covering it. And let me guess, the state of the city was strong. 
It was strong. Uh, he touched on all the hot button <laughs> issues. And if you've covered Bruce Harrell, you know he's a really passionate guy. It's something that he clearly carried over from his football playing days at Garfield High and later UW. It's it's that kind of energy. But he talked of changing the narrative, the ne- negativity and the, the unrest in Seattle. The truth is that the status quo was unacceptable, that families forever changed because of senseless tragedy or driven by gun violence or overdose. Nobody talks about Seattle without talking about the crime. Violent crime up 20 percent, shootings up by 40 percent. Harold says he plans to hire 125 new police officers. Trouble is, Jeff, Seattle PD has 350 openings. Listen to this. The depleted staffing we see today does not allow us to react to emergencies and crime with the response times that our residents deserve. That right there is chilling when you talk about response times. And of course, he wants to hire a new breed of police officer, someone that will buy into uh, the police position being a community uh, sort of position, not a position of authority. Well, the this, this shortage of police officers is something we've been following for quite some time, several years. In fact, and in fact, last week on, on the Politicast, we talked about the fact that they had these signing bonuses and retention bonuses, but they ran out of money, and now they're losing uh, officers to other uh, agencies as well. How is he combating that? Well, they've got a special class that they're grooming right off the bat. It's somewhere between 36 and 39 officers. And then he says they have budgeted enough money to hire 125 new police officers. Again, it's it's something that I mean, he really cannot execute at least some of what he wants to execute without more police officers on the street because people want to know that their neighborhoods are safe, that if people are committing crimes, they're going to be arrested and prosecuted. And if you don't have enough police officers on the street, that sort of notion kind of rings hollow. Well, and the other thing he's got to do is hire a new police chief. Did he address that in the state of the city? You know, he didn't do that, but he did... uh, you know, he talked about all the things that needed needed to be done or still need to be done. I mean, you know, it was a 32-minute address, and the you know mayor promised lots of things. He promised to clean up homeless encampments, prosecute violent criminals, and offer a better city. I, I, th- I thought this was a, a, a nice moment. Fixing a pothole, making sure our sidewalks and parks are safe for children and families to use, making sure we enforce our criminal laws against those who are harming others. But if you if you do all of those things, you need to have you need to have strong people in place. And he has talked about that. He has talked about overhauling the way they do business in City Hall. He said, you know, he talked about the homeless problem, and he said the problem with that was that there were six different departments keeping track of homeless encampments and problem areas. And of course, you know, anybody who knows anything about government, uh, departments don't generally talk or they don't communicate very well. So he says he's got all of those under one roof. But he's he's clearly got some challenges because he needs strong leaders to help implement this plan. Does he plan on clearing out homeless encampments? Because that's been the hot-button issue for these encampments, legal or otherwise, that have set up on on public property, is that advocates for the homeless say you, you can't just go in and sweep because you're taking people's possessions and things of that nature and you, you got to have some place to put them so so what what is his plan when the boots hit the ground well you know he's doing something that that they did in california where he's talking about taking buildings and buying them and i'm assuming that means abandoned buildings that means hotels and motels that will accommodate people 
Um, in fact, I was surprised to hear this. You know, he's been very active, you know, trying to crack down on crime in some of the problem areas. But he says moving some of the most uh, visible homeless encampments is already happening. Listen. Over the last several months, the city has closed some of the largest encampments Seattle has seen, like Green Lake or Broadview Thompson and the Ballard Commons, providing over 400 people with shelter and support. Now, support is a key word there because support strikes at the core of homelessness, homelessness, and that's mental health services. And I've been waiting for him to mention that because, let's face it, uh, people who are homeless, 70, 80 percent of them are alcohol, drug addicted and mentally ill. And you can't fix the problem unless you fix some of those those conditions. Well, and he mentioned 400, but that's just a drop in the bucket for the thousands that Seattle and King County has. Well, you know what? you got to start somewhere. And, and of course, it, it, it is uh, something that, you know, helps sell his message. I mean, he was... He was up there for 32 minutes uh, talking uh, virtually to anyone that wanted to dial in. What I thought was interesting, though, was that the first minute and 15 seconds, there was an audio problem. So we didn't hear the first <laughs> minute and 15 seconds of his address. I'm, I'm certain that wasn't intentional, but it is um, it is ironic nonetheless. Uh, what about his relationship with the city council? In, in the past, we saw uh, former mayor Jenny Durkin had a, a very contentious relationship with the legislative branch of government, in particular with Lorena Gonzalez, who was the past president of the council, ran against Bruce Harrell, lost to Bruce Harrell in, in, in the race for Seattle mayor. Uh, and, and then, again, with uh, the socialist Shama Sawant, there was always that tension between the legislative branch and the mayor's office. A month and a half into his term, are we seeing uh, that thaw a little bit? Well, Bruce Harrell is is a moderate. He's, he's not he, he's playing it down the middle. He wants to he wants to be a consensus builder. He wants to bring people together. He mentioned uh, Council President Deborah Juarez by name. Uh, there may be some people that will be difficult to work with, but it is my sense that those people are going to be difficult for just about anyone who's in the conversation. But I, th- I thought the, the most important element of what he talked about uh, going forward, what kind of mayor he's going to be, is he's going to be a moderate. He's not going to swing left. He's not going to swing right. He knows that these are complicated situations, and he knows that you can't arrest the bad guys or pull the homeless people off the street unless you do it with some kindness and care. And that is that is a narrative that rings true across the country right now. So what's his first move going to be? Did he outline what he's going to do next? Well, you know... Uh, a week or so ago, when uh, the crime stats were released, he talked about the work that was done in the first 21 days down at 12th and Jackson and Little Saigon. Uh, that is, That was his first move, to go in there and try and improve things, move people off the street. Uh, it's a tall order. He said, you know, we, we've, we've arrested close to 40 people. Over half of those people were for serious felony offenses. And, you know, in the days that follow, they're, they're, the violence continued, the gun violence. Again, it's a tall order. I mean, I, you know, it's, it's got to be a multi-pronged approach because he's got to tackle violence. He's got to do something about the homelessness. And he has said over and over and over again, people want to see results. And when, when, I, when I see a shooting, when I see people living on the streets, I feel a sense of urgency to get this done. 
I mean, I, uh, homelessness and, and violent crime is, is clearly something that they can attempt to go after right now. Um, there are limitations because of the number of police officers that Seattle PD is down. But, but I, I think that's where it starts. But again, it's a very broad, multi-pronged approach. And we, John Lobertini, Northwest News Radio reporter, thank you so much. Still to come, more on the relationship between the mayor and the city council when the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelin. Staying on the topic of the new mayor of Seattle and his state of the city speech, we wanted to get a, a little bit more analysis on this and, and kind of dive deeper into the subtext of what Bruce Harrell was saying. And joining me now is a man who's been covering City Hall for decades. That's Matt Markovich, Fox 13 News political reporter. And Well, he had quite a few different audiences in his speech that we heard earlier in the week, not the least of which was the Seattle City Council. He did indeed. And I think I'm glad you brought that up because in my mind, there were two audiences in his speech. Obviously, the general public and what he wants to lay out his plan for his uh, first year in office. And that's what the state of the city address typically does. But clearly in this speech, he was targeting his second audience audience at the Seattle City Council. And I've been, you know, covering politics and news in Seattle since the Paul Shell days. So that's like five mayors ago. And I haven't uh, well, heard does that count the uh, week we had five mayors in seven days. I mean, <laughs> well, of course, I, I, yeah, Bruce Harrell was mayor for seven days there. And, <laughs> and there. That's correct. So now he's officially elected mayor, not appointed. But uh, but going back those to the Paul Shell days, I haven't I don't recall a state of the city speech where the mayor named every individual council member by name and gave them some kudos about what they've contributed to the city. Even starting with Deborah Juarez, who is the, the now the president of the city council, which is a fairly prominent, powerful position with the city council, all the way down to newly elected Sarah Nelson, who's only been on the council for as long as Bruce Harrell's been mayor, six weeks and gave her kudos about her contributions to the city. So why is he doing this? Well, clearly, I think it's buttering up the council. He knows that in the last four years, especially in the last two, the city council has been odds with the mayor's office, particularly Mayor Jenny Durkin, over a a variety of things. Nonetheless, uh, SPD funding, you know, uh, homelessness, what to do. Um, And so he was a council president, if you recall, when Mayor Durkin was mayor. So he knows the friction firsthand between the previous administration and the city council. And then he left the city council and now he's elected mayor. So by calling out every city council member by name and giving them a kind of a scratch on the back, um, he knows he needs all of their support to get whatever he's going to get done over this first, this next year. The city is facing $150 million less this year in the budget than they had last year. A lot of that federal COVID money is not going to be there. So he knows he's going to have to have cooperation with the city council to just even maintain some existing programs that he likes, but to start new ones. I mean, he talked about it, as you know, in his uh, speech about hiring the right amount of officers and the correct kind of officers for SBD. He has this homeless initiative that he wants to spend money on outside of the $120 million that the city is going to be giving to the regional homeless authority. So he, to get all this stuff done and to write the check, he needs the city council on his side. And I thought that was a really interesting take 
and what he did in his speech. Well, certainly the Seattle City Council controls the budget. That's not controlled by the mayor at all. He just has a little bit of leeway here and there. But the, the big items, as you said, controlled by the Seattle City Council, and, and he needs the support to get anything done. So what's been the response from the City Council? Are, are they kind of backing him early on? Granted, we're only a month and a half into his term. Well, there was no official response that I saw from any of the council members. But I think by by just them, you know, everybody has egos, right? The mayor calls calls you out and, and supports you and praises you during his city city uh, speech. Um, you're going to kind of feel good about that. I'm going to give him a chance, you know, and I, I think he has, um, in terms of the breakdown of the council, he's got you know, basically three far left people on the council, uh, three people, three or four people that can, you can say in the middle and maybe two or three on the right, you know, so, or I should, <laughs> I should say center, not all the way to the right. Right Seattle, relative right? to Seattle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So he needs a cooperation from all nine to get his stuff done. And maybe he'll, he figures that, well, at least I'll lose three or four votes over on this end of things uh, on some of the items that he wants to propose from the, I'll call it from the far left. Uh, group. So he needs that support. So for him to go out and say all this in his speeches, I just found it very interesting. Now, of course, now he has laid out an initiative. He he went in in this speech and one other comment about his speech. He went in there and said what every politician either is advised to say or told not to ever say. And that is, I'm going to fix the city potholes. I mean, that's just as basic government as, like he said, as you can possibly be. But then again, it's so simple that anybody in Seattle can understand whether or not he's doing a good job is the pothole in in front of their house. Mm -hmm. Has it been fixed? If they call, he said, you know, call the city. We'll get those things fixed. How many people are picking up the phone now or sending an email to the city to find it, fix it app? and say, hey, Mr. Mayor, fix my pothole. <laughs> now, I, I've been covering city politics a long time, not as long as you, Matt, and that's just by nature of me being younger. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I, I remember when Greg Nichols years ago had his war on potholes. Do you remember that? Yes, I do. I do. And you know what? Maybe <laughs> I maybe I shouldn't joke about this, but akin to the homeless, making it a parallel to the homelessness, we've had emergency uh, on state of emergency state of emergency on homelessness in the city of seattle and it's arguably worse on the streets so the pothole rangers the war on potholes under mayor nichols and now i'll fix your potholes under mayor peril well that's an easy uh it's an easy bar to see and whether or not he makes it and exceeds it so how likely do you think it is that Mayor Harrell is going to accomplish his agenda? Is he going to get buy-in from the city council? Well, I think that's the hope for a lot of people. And that might be one of the reasons why he was elected mayor, because you had Lorena Gonzalez, who was president of the city council and, and kind of a polarizing figure. And, and you know, Mayor Harrell talked about unity and, and he's a, I think I personally, I think he's a much better skilled politician than Lorena Gonzalez is. Uh, he's been doing it for a lot longer. Uh, so he knows what to say, when to say it. And now with his plans, which were, as they would be, kind of vague in the uh, state of the city address, you don't want to earmark and say really specific things. But for him to get his agenda done, 
he is going to need the support of the council. And obviously we're in a big honeymoon period and his honeymoon period may be longer because he has colleagues and friends on the city council. Unlike Mayor Durkin, when she came to office, she had no elected experience and didn't really know anybody on the city council. And then they had to start from scratch. Well, Carol has is way ahead. He's got a lap on uh, Mayor Durkin already just because of his knowledge of the city and being the former city council president. So I think he's going to get a lot of uh, a lot of runway. There's a lot of tarmac there for for Bruce Harold to to put his plan in effect and drive around the airport there with it. And so we'll we'll see. We'll see how long this honeymoon lasts with Mayor Bruce Harrell and the Seattle City Council. Matt Markovich, political reporter for Fox 13 News. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Jeff. Still to come, a sick out in Olympia as workers look to unionize with the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogel. I'm now a checkup of things in Olympia and elsewhere. Dozens of legislative staffers last week called out sick, demanding the right to unionize. Now, the protest was organized after two bills that would have allowed legislative staff to form a union died at cutoff without a vote. By one estimate, more than 100 staffers stayed home. House Speaker Lori Jenkins. Our staff is limited. They can't lobby. They're not allowed to do that. Um, so they have really limited things that they can do to communicate their their desires and their wishes, and I welcome that. She says the issue will be revisited in next year's session. Republican leadership, though, said they weren't aware of any of their staff taking part in the walkout. Now, we've heard so much about these trucker protests in Ottawa, but it's not just been in Ottawa. Canadian authorities have arrested 16 people for blockading a port of entry to Washington state. This was a protest much like we saw in Ontario with people opposed to vaccine and mask mandates. But the Pacific Highway border crossing is once again open, says Constable Sergeant Senga with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Our officers have uh, set up checkpoints leading into this neighborhood. Those arrested were jailed on suspicion of mischief and intimidation. And finally this week, after compromising the safety of 30 American submarines, a 67-year-old Auburn woman will now head to prison. For decades, Elaine Thomas was the head of metallurgy at Tacoma's Atlas Foundry, which is now Bradkin Incorporated. During that time, she falsified reports, saying steel shipments destined for submarine hulls met the Navy's strict standards, when in fact, they did not. The bad steel was used in some 30 subs, which now have to undergo testing and retrofitting, which which has already cost more than $14 million. Thomas pleaded guilty to defrauding the United States back in November. She has been sentenced to two and a half years in prison and a $50,000 fine. And that will do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Northwest News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and many more. All are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogelup. Thank you for listening, and have a good week.